0: Welcome to the Sex Within Marriage Podcast. My name is JD and I write at UncoveringIntimacy.com and today I'm sharing with you a podcast that I wrote and delivered this Saturday at my home church. Both pastors were away and I was asked to step in and preach and so I decided uh, I'd preach about sex because that seemed to be what uh, everybody wanted me to preach about. Now, people in my home church don't really know about my blog. Uh, there's a couple individuals that do, but the rest uh, have no idea. so uh, some of them were quite blindsided by the topic. There are a few people who were upset before I started preaching uh, because uh, there was no kids program that day as uh, both our regular our senior pastor and our youth pastor were gone. And uh, when some of the members saw the title of my sermon in the bulletin, uh, I called it Sex, an Uncomfortable Topic We Need to Discuss. Uh, they were a bit upset because, well, there were kids in the room. But afterwards, a few of them had changed their mind and actually thanked me for preaching and said it was I did a good job. So uh, there were a couple others that wouldn't look me in the eye, but what can you do? Like I said, it's an uncomfortable topic. So... Uh, I thought I'd share the sermon with everybody Because there's a few people who knew that I was preaching And really wanted to see the audio I'm also going to attach my sermon notes uh, Basically the script that I had written for myself uh, On the website You can check it out at uncoveringintimacy.com They're not exactly a one-to-one If you've ever preached before You know that what you write isn't exactly what you say Uh, So it's not quite a transcript But it's more of a This is what I intended to say And uh, it's pretty close, but there are some variations here and there. Just a heads up for those who wanted to try to read along while listening. Don't do that. It'll just confuse you. I also wanted to mention that uh, our audio guys were also away, unfortunately, at the same event that the pastors were gone to. So I recorded this on my phone that was sitting on the pulpit. It's not a great recording. I'm sorry for that. I tried to clean it up as much as I could and boost the volume up when I could. Um, But there are still quite a few spots where it's kind of hard to hear what I say, and then you can refer to the notes if you like. Uh, So, that's it for now. Uh, I'll let you listen to the sermon, and then I'll say a few things afterwards as well. So, here you go. This is me preaching in my home church, uh, a sermon called Sex, an Uncomfortable Topic We Need to Discuss.
1: Today I'm going to be talking about sex. I don't know about you, but... That makes me a little uncomfortable. Anybody else feel uncomfortable? All right. The rest of you are fine. This is an uncomfortable topic, especially in churches, and uh, I've been on podcasts, radio shows, and teleconferences speaking on the topic of married sexuality to thousands of people. I've written literally a half a million words on the topic, and it's still an uncomfortable discussion for me, uh, especially standing up in front of people I know and I can see, because usually. It's radio or it's text and I don't have to see it. So it's an uncomfortable topic to stand here and talk about. Yesterday my daughter asked me, what are you preaching about? And uh, I paused for a moment because it's hard to look at your 12 year old daughter uh, and say, I'm going to talk about sex. And, uh, but I did. I said, I just said sex. And she paused and she gave me this funny look like she does. And, uh, she's like, that's not something you talk about in churches. And so, Today is her 12th birthday, and uh, she's already somehow learned that talking about sex and church are incompatible. And I assure you it's not something I've taught her, because I, I think this is a topic we need to talk about. And it's something that we're open about talking about, uh, even if it's uncomfortable. But we implicitly teach our children and the adults that this is not a safe topic, especially in churches, or really anywhere in Christian contexts. And so that's why I'm going to preach about it today, because I want my kids to hear me talk about it. I want them to be able to say, yes, this is something God created. This is something we can talk about. This is something we can discuss. These are things that, issues that we can tackle. And I understand there are kids in the audience, and so I've adjusted it appropriately. I knew before I wrote the sermon that there were going to be kids. Uh, and I wrote it because there were going to be kids. Because I need you guys to have these uncomfortable conversations with your kids. I need to have them with my kids, too. And they're not fun, and they're not easy, but they need to happen. And we'll get into it a bit more later. But So I, I, I told a few people beforehand in the church that I was going to be pre- preaching on this topic, and a few people kind of looked at me funny, and uh, a lot of people uh, said, Yes, that's fantastic. I want to hear this sermon. I will make sure I'm there. Or can you send me a recording? Or is it going to be on the website?" And I don't know if it is, because the video camera seems to be down, and I don't know if we're recording, but I'm recording on my phone just in case for the people who might want to hear it later. I wasn't really surprised that people were really excited to hear about the topic because I've learned that if you create a safe space for people to talk about this, invariably, at least for married couples, the topic turns to sex because it's something that almost everyone struggles with at some point or another. And it's not just if they're married. Singles do too. So do divorced people, widowed people, uh, it is a common thing that Christians struggle with and cannot find help with. They don't feel safe going to their churches and talking about it. They don't feel safe going to their pastors. They feel embarrassed talking to therapists. Uh, across the board, it's a problem that we don't talk about. And a few years ago, Christina and I led a small group uh, based on a book. We had a few people here uh, in that small group, and it was amazing to see as soon as you created the safe space that people would open up and talk about it and discuss and I want to see more of that in our churches, uh, in appropriate contexts. A couple of weeks ago, our pastor sent me a text. Uh, he wanted me to read a verse. He didn't know what the topic was. Uh, I think he only found out two days ago, really. But he asked me to read 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 to 5. And I would have a PowerPoint, except my internet went down last night when I was going to try to create it. So apparently I'm not supposed to have one. So I'm just going to have to read all the text texts. So 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 to 5, if you're really quick, you can flip to it, but... and I think you might have been trying to give me a subtle hint that I should be talking about salvation and the good news. Uh, but I kind of focused on that. I came with fear and trembling. So I, here I am. And I wanted to start with, why is it so uncomfortable? Why are we, are we not willing to talk about this? Why do we disconnect sexuality and church so far that never the twain shall meet? To the parents who I understand are probably uncomfortable right now, I want to say to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, no one said this parenting thing was going to be easy. Uh, in fact, it's probably one of the most difficult things you can do in the world. Uh, to the kids and teens, if your parents won't talk to you about this, I will, because I will stand up here and talk to everyone about it, and I'm not afraid to talk to you. I can't I can't promise it won't be awkward, but I do promise that I can keep, give you a safe space where you can talk about it and not feel really weird talking to your parents. Uh, and to everybody else that's an open invite, too. Uh, I talk to probably a few hundred couples a year about this. And uh, as uncomfortable as the conversations are, um, most of them really need to talk about it. And if you really need to talk about it and you have nowhere else to go, I'm willing. Uh, if talking face-to-face is uncomfortable, we can email. Sometimes that's easier for people. So, as I said, I'm preaching this early because I want to hear, I want my kids to hear me talk about sex in a Christian context. I want other people to hear me say it so that we can kind of get past this this discomfort. Because if my 12 year old has already learned that it's okay, then, uh, we have a problem. Because what happens when she grows up a little bit more and starts getting interested in boys? a little bit more and she gets starts dating. And more and she gets engaged and gets married. And has questions and problems and has nowhere to turn to. I want to make sure that doesn't happen. And I I want that not to happen for your kids too. And for the adults. We all have a common problem. So, I thought I'd start with why we don't talk about sex in churches. This is going to be a bit of a history lesson because I know everybody loves history lessons. Um, So, this whole concept of not talking about topic. Uh, It doesn't come from the Bible, clearly, because almost every book of the Bible discusses it. Uh, You'd be hard-pressed to find one that does not mention it. Uh, Its writers were not shy about saying, uh, they wouldn't just say, oh, this person had this kid. No. They'd first go, oh, Adam knew his wife, and then they had a baby. As if we didn't already know that that's how babies came from. Uh, But they weren't shy about it. And uh Judaism was never really shy about it. They have a really healthy view on sexuality. They did pre-Christianity, and they've continued in that post-Christianity. So it seems to be something just within Christianity that we've kind of gone off the mark and shoved it into a corner. And it seems to come from the, like, Greek and Roman and pagan beliefs that were around the time that Christianity was just starting to get on its feet. These kind of early stepfathers, I call them, of Christianity – they came from uh, pagan background, Gnostic backgrounds, Neoplatonic backgrounds, if you know who Plato was. And they taught that uh, engaging in sex was really a concession to human weakness. It wasn't something that we should do, but something that was a weakness in us that, that we're trying to solve or fix or we're failing to uh, get away from that temptation. By 200 AD, Origen, who's one of our a well-known uh, early writer, He was teaching that uh, the entire cause of the fall was that the serpent actually seduced Eve. And that it wasn't about a tree. The tree was just a metaphor. And so that sex became the entire cause of the fall of mankind. Augustine later taught that uh, married couples shouldn't even have sex, even if they're married. You know, if they're going to have kids, well, fine, just have kids. But other than that, they should remain celibate. And his teachings, uh, they kind of fell out of favor within a 100 years. So it didn't last long, these uh, spiritual marriages, he called them. Uh, but it did create the grounds for uh, the orders of nuns and priests that later followed. His teachings caused a lot of Paul's writings in the New Testament also to be a little bit twisted. And we still hear some of these wrong interpretations from day to day. I know I have in my lifetime. And during the medieval era, it didn't get really any better. Uh, the church started blacking out days that married couples could engage in. Uh they blacked out Sundays because it was the holy day. Uh they blacked out uh Mondays because Jesus rose, they blacked out Fridays because he died. Uh they blacked out uh Saturdays, I can't remember why. I don't think it was because of Sabbaths, because they were busy killing all the Sabbath keepers. But at the end of the end of all of their blacking out days, it was basically you were allowed on a Tuesday and a Wednesday, as long as it wasn't a feast day or a holiday or a holy day. Uh also if it wasn't during the season of Lent or any other uh season where you're supposed to fast. And by the end of it, you had pretty much 44 days that you could pick from, as long as you were fertile during that period, and you were still a childbearing age. And God forbid you enjoy it, because then it's still a sin. And this is kind of where we ended with the Middle Evil era. Now, our our views have changed uh, quite a bit in the last few hundred years, but it wasn't until the Reformation that Protestants started rejecting this idea of celibacy just for the sake of celibacy. The idea that abstinence is more holy than marriage. And it was this idea that they started going back to the Bible and reading the Bible. And then, I think it was John Calvin. He went so far as to say that lifelong lifelong celibacy was rash and not suggested, uh, unless you've been given a specific gift of grace from God directly. So he did not think that this was for most people. After Calvin came the Puritans. Uh, which everyone kind of assumes that the Puritans have this kind of, uh, reputation of not talking about sex, not enjoying sex. They really downplayed it. But they didn't. They were actually very, very sex positive. I would argue they were more sex positive than we are now. What they were very against was sexual immorality. They, they were absolutely unforgiving about sex before marriage or any, uh, affairs, things like that. But it was, because they held sex in such high esteem that they were against these things. They created civil and church laws to actually regulate this. Uh, it's the only time in history that you actually get civil and church cases of spouses taking their other spouse to court because they're not engaging in this intimacy. And this was the Puritans that we think of, oh, well they started this whole thing. And if we had just stopped there, you know, they, they read their Bible, they understood God made this thing good, we're we're done that would be fantastic but then the victorian era came by and this whole uh, exploration into enlightenment and intellectualism over emotionalism and pretty much we went back a few hundred years and then more so pregnant women were suggested that they should not leave the house for fear that other people might see them pregnant and then be reminded this is where babies come from uh you weren't allowed to show your ankles because that was that was too arousing uh, we put covers on our furniture chair lights uh, because that might arouse some people's intentions. And unfortunately, right uh, at the end of this Victoria era is about, actually, sorry, right in the middle of it, is when Adventism was founded. And we see in early Adventism a lot of these ideas being reflected in early church writings as well. Um, Kellogg, who I think... Everybody knows about Kellogg's Cereal. Uh, he actually founded the, the brand. And he, he actually invented cork as a means of lowering libido. That was, that was his stated purpose. Uh, because he believed that engaging in sex lowered your lifespan and reduced your quality of life. Uh, he suggested that couples should not engage more than once a month. Even that was too excessive. Oh, I wanted to say it's interesting to know, his cereal did actually improve quality of life and lifespan, but it was because it included a lot of fiber, which they did not have before. Uh, so he thought he was, it, his reasons were working out, but it wasn't the right reason. Uh, he also wrote, uh, in his book, uh, I should say that the majority of women, happily for them, are not very much troubled with any sexual feelings of any kind. The best mothers, wives, and managers of households Know little or nothing of sexual indulgences. Love of home, of children, of domestic duties, and the only passion are the only passions they feel. As a general rule, the modest woman seldom desires any gratification for herself. And we see this echoed uh a lot in our church, early church writings, uh not just from Doctor Kellogg, but from other prominent figures. Of course, we know this isn't true. Uh, I, I'd say from my own research, about a quarter to a third of marriages, the wife actually has more interest than the husband. But we still have this idea in our, in our culture that oh, it's always the men and the women are better off not being interested. So our church was founded at this time when sex was thought, was thought to deplete your lifespan and that desiring it was unnatural and at very least undesirable uh the women should not encourage their husbands in desiring them uh marriages should not be out of emotional love and uh, that they they were actually it was their job to actually limit how much sex they were having uh their marital privileges they called it. time so since then uh, we've thankfully officially grown out of this position as a church uh the general conference voted and released a statement uh in a publication they called a statement on concern of sexual behavior and they wrote in their opening remarks, it is Satan's purpose to preserve every good thing, and the perversion of the best inevitably leads to that which is worst." They basically were saying, of all the good things that God created, sex is one of the best. And because of that, Satan twisted it into something, one of the worst. And that's a pretty substantial statement for the conference to make. Uh, this is what we as Adventists doctrinally hold to, That it is a good thing that Satan
0: But unfortunately, it hasn't been
1: echoed in our church culture as much. We still don't talk about it. Unfortunately, while we've been officially reforming, the culture of our churches hasn't much followed suit. And it's not just in Adventism. Uh, Every denomination struggles with this. We haven't quite caught up to the Puritans yet. And I think part of this has to do with the whole sexual resolution of the 60s. You know, at a time where everybody was saying, you know, it's all good. It's all fine. We don't have to worry about it at all. Uh, I think we as a church kind of distance ourselves to say, well, if they're talking about it nonstop, we're just not going to talk about it at all, lest we be confused with that. And we never really change from that. Everyone is still afraid to talk about it, including, and sometimes especially pastors. Uh, I get almost as many pastors contacting me as I do lay people. But these days, our society is obsessed with it, teaching everyone that it's Fun and safe, and should be enjoyed by anyone, anyone, how, anywhere, anytime, so long as uh, all parties are consenting. Sex has become purely recreational, like sports is considered fun with some risks, uh, like any good game. Unlike uh, sports, the industry catering to spectators is massive. By contrast, we in churches still have our old stigmas about talking about it, uh, and. Now, compounded on it, we, we fear of being seen as archaic in our views. Uh, now we, we almost feel that we can't talk about it because, well, they're so open at everything that if we share our views on it, then well, people will be even less likely to listen to us about topics like the gospel and salvation. You know, we, we worry that if we share our views, it's kind of like telling someone, I- I'm, I'm waiting until I'm married to play basketball, and then it'll only be one-on-one games. And only with my spouse, and no, you can't watch. You know, to the rest of the world, it sounds almost ridiculous in the context of our culture. So here I am, uh, a non-pastor with no fears of being sanctioned or censured, or a few fears anyways. Uh, I can't be fired because I don't get paid. And so I thought I, I'd bring up this uncomfortable t- topic and open it a discussion because it's a discussion we need to start having. So let's look at what the Bible says. Uh, after all, for years of the church taught that it was simple, only by procreation, so what does it actually teach us? Uh, in Genesis 1, we see God creates adamant youth, and then basically the very first commandment we have in the world is go have sex. And In Genesis 1, verse 28, he says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. You, know, you can't do that by any other means. At least adamant Eve could. We're starting to try with science, but even then, we're, we're really only borrowing from what God already made. You know, when people ask me why I have so many kids, uh, I say, well, we took that First Commandment very seriously. <laughs> so you have Adam and Eve in the garden, which, with, by the way, perfect, sinless, flawless bodies, uh, naked, and created on a Friday. And uh, anybody want to guess what they were doing Friday night? Uh, I, I'm thinking maybe this is why Judaism thinks that it's a mitzvah to engage in that activity on Sabbath. I don't know. But I want to point here that God tells them to multiply. He basically creates sex. And then a couple of verses later, he said, God said, saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And we kind of lose this in English, but in, in Hebrew and in their culture, this is very good. It is not just, oh yeah, it's very good. It is both functionally and aesthetically pleasing. You know, he, he looked at it and basically went, yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly what I wanted, And that included sex, uh, lest we forget. So if you remember back in our prehistory lesson, uh, this is something that people forgot or tried to kind of push aside for a very long time. Uh, they taught everything from Satan created sex, to sex was part of the curse, to the tree of knowledge of good and evil was a metaphor for sex. Uh, but you can't really get around these simple statements. You know, God created it, told them to multiply, and that said it was very good. Is that it? is that all that is for? Is it just for making babies? Because I think this is the message that often kids, teenagers, adults get from church: it's for procreation, and that's the big problem: is that you might have a child. And so along comes the birth control, and boom, there goes the church's worry: no more kids. I'm fine, right? Uh, which, by the way, birth control is not 100% effective. If anyone didn't know that, just a heads up. But that's not all there is, you know. Uh, besides procreation, it's also beneficial for unity. Genesis 2 verse 24 says, This is why a man leaves his mother and father and is united with his wife and they become one flesh. This idea of unity and one flesh comes up a few times. So, and we know from biology that uh, this is true. Uh, when we engage in sex, our bodies emit a ton of hormones. Uh, one of the biggest ones that people know of is oxytocin. Anybody heard of oxytocin before? Couple people. Alright, I'll teach the rest of you what oxytocin is. So oxytocin is this hormone that, it uh, is very uh, prominent when you're pregnant, uh, when you're breastfeeding. It, it's this, people call it the bonding hormone. It makes you feel connected to the whatever object that you're like, looking at. So in pregnancy, it, it literally forces the mother to fall in love with the baby. Uh, it makes them feel like they want to protect it and love it and they feel connected, they, you know, just all these overwhelming surgical emotions. And same with breastfeeding. Uh, same thing happens. If you ever seen a new mother and they're holding the baby, they would just sit there and watch the baby for hours. Some of them. Because just that sense of emotional bonding is just, it's crazy. Uh, we as guys never get that. Uh, I remember when my kids were small, I kind of looked at them go and hold them and I'm like, yeah, they're neat, but they don't do anything. You know, not until they're like two or three of them here, but uh, but my wife would hold them for hours on end, and I'd be like, no, I'm good, I'll put it down now for a bit, and I'll pick them up again later. But we don't, we don't get that kind of boost of oxytocin, and women generally have way more oxytocin than men do. About ten times the level that men do. Uh, on any given basis. Uh, that's, I think, why they emotionally connect to others better. Uh, bonds between girlfriends tend to be much stronger than bonds between guy friends. Uh, you know, we'll hit each other and go, "Yeah, that means I like you." Uh, whereas women will actually share and talk and cry together, and we don't get that because we lack that uh, that that oxytocin to make us feel safe and secure and emotionally bonded. Uh, but the one time that we get close to the level that women have all the time is during sex. Uh, our oxytocin, oxytocin level just spikes for about. Half an hour afterwards, and for those who are married, if you've ever had a conversation afterwards, uh, those can be some of the best conversations of your marriage uh, if you manage to stay awake. Because now both partners feel emotionally connected, they feel secure, they feel bonded, they feel safe, they feel like they can uh, be vulnerable and emotionally intimate because this hormone's going through them. This is not a frivolous thing. This is just one hormone. There's a bunch of others. There's dopamine that. The a reward drug that makes you feel like you're winning and that you want to do this again. It, it, your brain literally rewires itself to say, I want this again. Uh, you have uh, vasopressin, which makes you feel that you want to protect the person that you're with, and you would do anything for them. You would die for them, give up your life for them. All of these get admitted at this time. And if you are married, this is a fantastic thing. This is what God designed it. You know, you've committed your life to someone, and he says, great, I'm going to give you all the hormones to help you commit your life. to Not just intellectually, but emotionally. We are going to literally chemically glue you two together. And a marriage is fantastic, because you're trying to build a foundation for something that is supposed to last a lifetime. With one one person. If this is happening with a one-night stand, a plane, a vacation, one-off, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, even fiance, this is terrifying. Because while dating and engagement are supposed to be there to vet a potential spouse, to look for red flags, to say, yes, this is someone that will be as committed to God as I am, and we will do this thing together. You know, we will build, we will build an oasis in this enemy's land together for the rest of our lives doing God's work. That is what dating and relationships are for, is to figure out who can we do this with. But if you're engaging in sex before you get to that point that you make a commitment, you choose this partner, and you say, this is the person I'm going to be with for the rest of my life, what you're, your brain is basically going, oh, I've already made a commitment. I don't need to make any more judgment calls anymore. The part of your brain that starts to make judgment calls shuts off at that time. Uh, you literally, like, it's it literally the part of your brain that, that makes, Make these calls, decides whether a person is safe or not, it shuts off during that period. Uh, it just reduces blood flow. It's pretty amazing, uh if you look at the FMRIs and everything. Uh, but if you're in a, in a relationship that's not committed, you know, basically what you're saying is you're giving up your right to bet them. And I don't think that's what God wanted. You know, uh Proverbs five verse nineteen even says about what to a husband for about wives, you know, may you ever be intoxicated with your with her love. This is the one time in the Bible that we're encouraged to be intoxicated, not by wine or alcohol, but by love. And it is true; uh, our brain kind of goes through the same mechanisms as if you get drunk uh, when you have sex. So, yeah, you're drunk on hormones. Basically, you're intoxicated with infatuation. And if you think it's love, uh, it's not. You know, it, it feels like love. Uh, but if you haven't based your relationship on something more important than this, you know, we, most people get into relationships because they feel, oh, you make me feel loved. You make me feel good. I like what I get out of this. And then they have sex and they feel more of that. And they judgment judging each other. And then a few years later, they kind of wake up and go, I'm not getting what I want out of this anymore. You know, I, It's not making me feel good. And that wasn't the point of marriage. The point of marriage is to give yourself to someone else to say that I'm going to live for them. You know, this is an example of Christ living for us. So on the one hand, I want to say something uh, that will terrify all the kids and singles away from sex and say, don't do this. And But we know that doesn't work. Uh, We've tried that already, and we're failing miserably at it. So instead, I want to say, you know, sex with your spouse is amazing. You cannot imagine how amazing. Not because of the physical aspects, but because of the sense of the acceptance and belonging is just out of this world. It, frankly, I think it's holy. You know, God created this for a purpose. But in most couples these days, that feeling is broken by guilt, by shame, by regret, uh, by a, a lot of baggage from previous relationships, even if it's with the same person that you eventually married. They still struggle with the same thoughts, the same regrets, the same shame. And for those who have made perhaps some unwise decisions, I, will, I do want to give you some hope. Uh, you can get over it in time. You know, With forgiveness and grace, you can get past it and move forward. But that's one of the reasons you need to find a good spouse, one that believes in forgiveness and grace, who is Christian and has a firm foundation in what we believe. And I want to warn those of you who have not made a decision yet one way or another. You haven't engaged. We have lots of young kids who I hope are not yet. Uh, And while you can get over bad decisions, there is hope. Uh, You will spend a lot of time getting over them. It's not simple. You can start your marriage off on kind of two steps back. uh, Time that could be better spent in a brand new marriage. Because once you're married, that same act that causes guilt and shame and regret with someone other than your spouse is designed to build up your marriage and it will uh, but it takes time in fact it's so important to a marriage that paul suggests that you should never decide deny your spouse that opportunity to reconnect to get emotionally glued together unless you both mutually decide to focus on god for a short time uh, it says for prayer and fasting uh, to do otherwise is to invite temptation into your marriage uh y'all want to know where he says that, it, it's 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and fasting. Then come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. When spouses ask me occasionally, well how long is a short time, like how long should you go between? And I, I like to ask them, well, how long can you go without food? So one of the problems that we have in our culture these days is that, uh, most people are Become acutely aware of their sexuality way too early and way too often. And we're bombarded with sexual imagery all day, every day. Uh, Song of Solomon eight verse four says, "Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires." Uh, I think God designed in us that at a, for a specific time when we start looking for a spouse, you know, something in us wakens up. But our society is pushing that age lower and lower and lower. Uh, for myself, I can't even walk. Between Union Station train and the subway, which is like a two minute walk without seeing three lingerie ads. Full size. Like, big as life. And it's ridiculous because there are kids walking through this, everybody's walking through this. Uh, our TV, uh, TV ratings are becoming more lax. Uh, the stuff that we see on TV now is insane compared to what was on TV 20, 30 years ago. Uh, I watched this movie, uh, this old movie, uh, I can't remember what the name of it was, but there was a couple in it and the whole thing was like, you know, they were engaging in an infancy and they were just rolling around on the bed because that's all they could show at the time. It was like 40, 50 years ago. Now, clubs are off, everything's okay. Uh, not to mention that, but curriculum changes in our province and in others and in the states as well. They keep pushing education, sexual education, lower and lower. Uh, now they're starting, they're pushing this started at what, grade six, grade four? Uh, and they keep pushing younger and younger. Uh, our collective desires are being awakened before their time and constantly. It's no longer that, oh, you just get home and then you see the object of your desire. We are painted with potential objects of desire all day, every day. And I'm afraid I don't have uh, a simple solution for this. You know, I've been married for 17 years. It's been a while since I was single.
0: And I wasn't very good at it when
1: I was single. Uh, I got married when I was 20, and I started dating my wife when I was 16. Uh, I never really got the whole single lifestyle. Uh, I did not have to deal with this, so I'm afraid I don't have answers or solutions. But what I do know is refusing to talk about it isn't going to make it easier to deal with. Uh, we need to open these discussions so we can talk about it, how to deal with it. Uh, The old canned canned answers of, well, you just have to pray and have faith. They're not going to cut it. As much as I'm in favor of prayer, uh, this isn't enough. And so we need to start talking about this in our Christian circles, including in sermons. Uh, If we don't, we will continue to cause a lot of problems. If we can't talk positively about sex, we appear to be sex negative. We are at odds with scripture, which is a big problem. If we also continuously tell our single people that sex is bad, sex is wrong, don't have sex, you know if they do get married, flipping that switch, the switch to overnight, "Oh, sex is good, you should have sex." Its God created it is very, very difficult for a lot of people. And I know because I deal with that fallout in couples on a weekly basis. If we don't talk about it in our churches, people will just assume that sex is easy and comes naturally, and when they have problems, because almost everyone does at some point or another, they will think they're alone, and they will be afraid to ask questions uh, of places where they can trust the answers. Instead, they go online to try to find answers, and that is terrifying. Uh, if we only talk negatively about sex, single people want to try it for themselves. I remember a high school teacher, I remember this vividly, and he once said, sex isn't that good. And my immediate thought was, I think you're doing it wrong. Because everything else in the world is telling me it is this amazing thing, and you think it's not, you must be wrong. We try to tell people that sex is bad, either morally or that it just doesn't feel good, we basically push them to have sex. Instead, we need to be telling them, you know, they're right, it can be great. And here's why it's great in a marriage. Here's why God designed it for marriage. Here's why you should wait. And if it's not great in your marriage, talk to somebody about it. Get help. uh, Because it should be, and it can be. Uh, I want better for you, and I think God wants better for you too. Not talking about it adds to the stigma, making it more difficult for parents and children to talk to each other about it. As a result, we leave sexual education of our kids to the world. Does anybody else think that's a bad idea? Uh, lastly, we make it difficult for people who are struggling with sexual desire and temptations to come forward and get help. You know, we make them out to be the worst kinds of sins because they're so bad nobody will talk about them, Even if we want to try to avoid them. We implicitly teach that sexual temptation is a sin even though we theologically know it's not. You know, we have an epidemic of porn use in our churches that we aren't really dealing with or talking about. The last stats I seem to see, say that one out of every two men is currently struggling with this. Whether that's in churches, by the way, not outside. Outside they don't think they're struggling. In the churches, one out of every two is currently struggling. That includes pastors. Uh the number for women, by the way, is one of three and it's growing. Uh, especially with the recent rise uh Fifty Shades trilogy and things like that, which, by the way, are still considered under the same topic before. The average age of a child's first exposure now is between 8 and 11. And that's scary for me. Because I have three kids who are 8 and up. Studies show that this is now the primary method of education for people. That is the first thing they go to when they try to learn something else. And Google's making it pretty easy to find it. This is where our children will likely be learning from if they don't, if they go to the internet to start asking questions. This is another reason why we need to be the safe space to talk about it and that they need to know that it's okay to talk about it to ask questions as awkward as it may be as well infidelity and scandals not only in politics but also in our churches every month i see some denomination as yet another high-ranking person in their denomination caught in a scandal you know uh both among members and their leaders it's growing at a frightening pace and I think what's more frightening is the lack of sex being had in marriages. Uh, about one in ten now are considered clinically sexless, which is less than ten times a year, which is what actually Dr. Kellogg recommended, so. And far more are kind of on this, this, starvation diet, where they're not getting this oxytocin, uh, replenished, and it causes, causes it to drift apart. So we have a plague of zombie marriages in our churches. The, from the outside, they appear to be up and walking around and living, but in the inside, they have long since died off. They're no longer being productive. Uh, they're not thriving. And instead of being a source of strength and support, they become a weight that drags both spouses down and the rest of the church. And I know because Christina and I have experienced both types of marriages, married to the same person. And I'm sorry if I touched on a whole bunch of subjects here and didn't really dig into a lot of them in depth, but... I could talk for days, literally, about this topic uh, without a whole bunch of pages written down. Uh, I had to write it down because or else I wouldn't stay on one topic <laughs> and just get through this whole thing. Uh, but we have so much to discuss, and nobody is discussing it. And we need to. We need to for our children and for our single people and for our married people and for ourselves. We need to for all the people out there who think that they're sexu- that think that we are sexually repressed and won't step forward in a church because they think it me- means that they have to become celibate. And who can blame them? Because frankly, we're worse than the Puritans were. And that's a bad reputation to have in this day and age. Uh, Christina thinks that maybe we're afraid that if we take a sex-positive stance, that people will think that we're pro everything. But we can draw our line in the sand. We can say this far and no further. We can preach that the gospel including sex, we can preach the gospel including sex while still saying that there is a right and wrong, that there are boundaries that should not be crossed, that God designed sex and it's wonderful within the proper context and terrible outside of it. We should be able to proudly say, yes, God made sex and it's very good. And I like it. Or, and I'm willing to, I'm waiting to enjoy it. Or, and I need to make some better choices about it. Or, and I'm struggling to treat it properly right now. So I want you to think about what are the messages that you grew up with? What are the things that you believe? What are we implicitly teaching, not only our children, but the other members in our churches? Because if we're not explicitly talking about it, then we're implicitly sharing the message that it's not okay to talk about. And I know we're all uncomfortable talking about it, especially in church. So I hope I've made a first kind of awkward step uh, for some of us that we can stop denying that God made this incredibly powerful thing that needs to be handled with respect in the context it was designed for so that we can get the full benefit of it and also be protected from its misuse.
0: So there you have it. There's my very first sermon preached in my home church about sex. Uh, I'm hoping I might be able to do a few more topics like that in the future, or maybe some workshops and things, uh, which I'll also share when I can. Now, I've had a few people ask if I'd come and preach in their church, uh, including some pastors. And if you're serious about that and you're willing to kind of get me out there and uh, put me up overnight and, of course, way back, uh, I'd be more than willing to discuss that. Just send me an email at jay, that's J-A-Y at uncoveringintimacy.com and uh, we can work out the details. Uh, that's it for now. I hope you enjoyed the sermon and uh, I'd love to hear your feedback. You can check out uh, the show notes and my sermon notes on the blog uh, at uncoveringintimacy.com and I'd love to hear uh, yeah, your feedback in the comments or just email me. And if you're hearing uh, our podcast for the first time and you don't know about the blog, uh, check out the website. Again, it's uncoveringintimacy.com. Uh, you can subscribe there to our newsletter and that way you kind of won't miss all the stuff that's going on. Uh, we do do podcasts. I occasionally do videos of uh, products and things like that. We've done some workshops. I'm hoping to do some more uh, soon, maybe in the fall because summer's a little difficult for people. And also there are tons and tons of blog posts and uh, a store full of resources to kind of help you in your marriage with all the things that people need help with that we don't generally discuss. So that's it for now. Uh, Stay tuned, and we will have more stuff out for you soon. See ya.